your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 32. So uh, we have uh, began, recently began a sermon series walking through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings. And we left off at Acts 431 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 32, and we're actually going to go through chapter 5, verse 11. So I'm going to read the text. Uh, and then after I read, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for help. And then we will we'll dive in to the passage this morning. So here's what the word of the Lord says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard him. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are out the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all who heard these things. But, oh God, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. Lord, uh, we need your help this morning because this is not an easy passage. This is a hard passage. But I pray that you would give us meek and humble hearts to hear what you have to say this morning. Lord, I pray that. At the end of the day, that your people, those who love you, would leave here loving and fearing you more than they did when they walked in. And I pray that for believers here in this place this morning who are ensnared by sin, who's, uh, who have the hopes of the evil one in them, that you would set them free this morning. 
that you'd open their eyes to the, to the gravity of their sin, and that you would open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus, so that they see that Jesus, you are better than any of the passing, fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer, and that they would flee sin and run to you. I pray for those who have hard hearts this morning, like Ananias and Sapphira, and that you'd be merciful to them, that you'd open their eyes, God, to see that it is foolish to lie to the Spirit of God, that it is foolish to hide secret sin, and that if they will only humble themselves and come to you, that they'll receive mercy. God, make us poor in spirit. Make us to mourn over our sin. Give us meekness. Give us a hunger and thirst for your righteousness. And I pray for those this morning that don't know you, that would say they are not a follower of Jesus. They don't believe. I pray, oh God, that you would Grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that you would put the fear of the Lord in their hearts so that they would see that there is nothing worth giving their lives to besides you. Nothing in no one surpasses you, O oh God, in glory. Jesus, I pray that you be magnified, that you help me in my weakness today. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. So, despite challenges uh, from the outset, the Holy Spirit continued to empower the early church. But in this passage, some challenges from inside the church begin to rise up. Last week, we looked at the challenge from outside the church. Those are going to continue, but there's also challenges from within. And in the passage we just read, uh, we're presented with a contrast. On the one hand, in the end of chapter 4, you have a description of believers who are united in love for one another, and in their commitment to bear witness to Jesus, and Barnabas is kind of singled out as an example. And then on the other hand, you have Ananias and Sapphira, who appear to be part of the church, but ultimately they're exposed as hypocrites. And unlike Barnabas and the rest, their worship was impure, and it was threatening the unity of the church. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've always been turned off by the hypocrisy of some Christians, and you would say that's one of the things that's really kept you from giving your life to Christ or joining a church or something like that. And this passage shows that God's heart is also grieved by hypocrisy. And the gospel actually brings about real life change in the hearts of true believers. So if you're turned off by hypocrisy, you're in good company. Because so is the Lord. The Lord doesn't want a church filled with hypocrites. He wants and he actually does truly transform the lives of his people. If you're a believer here this morning, this passage is an important opportunity to examine our own hearts. We need to be asking ourselves, am I becoming more like a Barnabas or like Ananias' father? On the surface, they can appear similar. But once you lift up the hood and you start to inspect, like we do in this passage, we discover that there's a world of difference. There's an eternal gulf between the two. But while no one is perfectly like Barnabas, no one is always like Barnabas, all of us have selfish tendencies, this passage demonstrates that the Holy Spirit brings about a genuine transformation in the hearts of Christians such that we don't just go through the motions. It's not just an outward conformity to a certain way of life or a certain religion. God truly transforms believers from the inside out. In worship, our motives matter. 
And I want all of us, even now in our seats, to pray that through His Word, God will bring about transformation in our hearts this morning. And the main point of the sermon this morning is that the Holy Spirit produces generosity in the church and purges hypocrisy from the church. The Holy Spirit produces generosity in the church and purges hypocrisy from the church. We're going to look at this uh, text in two sections. It's kind of a natural break. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, the pleasing fruit of the Holy Spirit, and then 5, 1 to 11, the rotten fruit of hypocrisy. So let's first take a look at the end of chapter 4 there, the pleasing fruit of the Holy Spirit. So that section, as I said a moment ago, is it's a summary of the unity and the loving fellowship of the church. And you might have uh, noticed that it's a very similar summary to the end of chapter 2 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And interestingly, each of these summaries follows a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. At the, uh, after Pentecost, uh, we read that all the believers had all things in common, that uh, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then similarly, in, the, in chapter 4, at, at, uh, at the end, uh, at, there in verse 31, the believers are praying for boldness, and it says the place where they were gathered was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what's the natural result? Well, you've got a, a group of Christians who are united with one another under the gospel. They're loving one another. There's, uh, nobody has a need. They're boldly bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus. This is a description of the kind of change that the Spirit of God brings about in His people. It's the description of the kind of community that God creates when people are filled with His Spirit. It's what the church ought to look like. This is the result of the Spirit fills the lives of followers of Jesus. They start becoming more like Jesus because they have the Spirit of Jesus in them. And really what we have here is a fulfillment of the new covenant community that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. That God's people would have his law written on their hearts. Jim Hamilton, a commentator, said, through their actions, they're fulfilling the second great command to love your neighbor as yourself. It says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34 says that there was not a needy person among them. Jesus said that the entire law can be summed up in this one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what we see these believers doing, isn't it? Right? They're fulfilling the law in, in, in fulfillment of the Old Testament. The law is now written on their hearts and they are carrying it out right here in this new covenant community. This is what Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 33. He said, this is the covenant, the Lord said through Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was the promise of the new covenant and at the last supper with, the, with his disciples, Jesus took the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So through his death on the cross, Jesus established the new and the better covenant. At the cross, Jesus bore the judgment that we deserve for our sin, 
We've broken God's law, and for that we deserve death. But Jesus died the death that we deserve. And then he rose from the dead, and because he's alive, he has sent his spirit to come and dwell in our hearts to fulfill Jeremiah 31. And now the law of God is written on the hearts of believers. We've been changed from the inside out. And so we love the Lord our God with all our heart, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, not because we're really great people, not because we've become really disciplined to be able to do it, but because God has changed us from, the, from within. That's what's happening in Acts 4. 32 to 37. Jesus said, John 13, 35, right? He said, by this all will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. Right? And this is why. This is why. It's the, it's the evidence. It's the fruit that the Spirit of God is within you. That you've been changed. That you're not just going through the motions, but you have the hearts. That's why love is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? It's, one, it's actually the first fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians chapter 5. It's, it's amazing, by the way, just pause for a second, that God takes people who are so selfish, so self-centered, and he gives us a new heart that actually cares about others, that actually wants to put other people before ourselves. And of course, none of us do that perfectly all the time, right? Our flesh sometimes gets the best of us. But just the fact that there's a desire in you to want to do that at all, that like you pray for that, like God help me to put others before myself, help me to die to myself, like don't overlook the fact, brother and sister, that's a miracle. Amen? Like that's a miracle that God has done. And, and maybe you've been walking with the Lord since you were a child and it's hard for you to remember a time, you know, a time when you were walking with the Lord, but I still, it's just as much a miracle in your life as it is in someone like mine who didn't give his life to Christ until he was 24 years old. It's a miracle that God has given us a heart to do that. Now Luke specifically highlights here, though, the fruit of generosity. One of the ways that love is most clearly manifested and expressed is in generosity. And these believers were generous towards one another. And, and Luke singles out Barnabas as a specific example of one of these generous believers. They were so generous, the verse 34 says, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. These people clearly loved one another far more than they loved their possessions. They loved God more than they loved their possessions. And they were willing to be inconvenienced to help one another. They had to decrease their own standard of living to help fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in need. One theologian pointed out that these verses here at the end of chapter 4 are also a fulfillment of the canceling of the debts in the sabbatical year. Uh, in uh, Jewish, uh, in, in uh, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, in the law, according to Jewish custom, every seven years, creditors were required to cancel the debt of those who owed them. And so they called that seventh year a sabbatical year because it was like a, a year of rest. It was a, a relief from the burden. And so these burdens of debt would be removed from people, and this happened, the cycle happened every single year. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, when the Lord is commanding the people to, uh, to observe the sabbatical year, 
he says to the people of Israel, he says, there shall be no poor among you. And then in Acts 4.34, we see there was not a needy person among them. Christ has brought about the fulfillment of the sabbatical year in the church. In the church, every year is a sabbatical year. Every day is a sabbatical day. Because there shouldn't be a needy person among us because we relieve the burdens from one another. What does Galatians 6.2 says? It says, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law. Christ. What's the law of Christ? How is it summed up? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. But one point of application here is that we must ensure that within the church there is no needy person among us. We're part of the same body, so if one member of the body suffers, the entire body suffers with it. This doesn't uh, mean that we're all supposed to be communists. This is not uh, you know, advocating a certain type of government. The point here is to express the point that we ought to hold our possessions loosely and be willing to help them to serve one another when there is need. That's the point. Alright? But in our context, oftentimes the needs aren't so much financial, although there can be financial needs, but oftentimes they're not so much financial as social or emotional or spiritual needs. And we also need to meet those types of needs within the body of Christ. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how this might look. Families. Uh, one of the things that you could do is you could invite the singles in the church into your home for dinner. Because oftentimes singles are lonely. And they go home to an empty house. And maybe they haven't been invited over to a family dinner. They may be separated uh, from their family. We live in a military community, and so we're going to have uh, singles who are going to come through who are in the military far from home. And one of the ways that you can bear the burden of a single member of the church that you can minister to them is by just opening up your home and inviting them in. For mature believers, one of the things you can do is you can choose to give up a part of your Saturday afternoon to spend time teaching a younger believer how to read the Bible over coffee, or just praying with them, or just mentoring them. Younger believers, one way you can relieve the burden of your brothers and sisters is by offering to babysit for a family in the church with young children so that they can go and have a date night or some time of respite. These are just a couple of examples of the ways that we can ensure that we are serving one another, being the hands and feet of Jesus, so that there is not a needy person among us. The point is, is have a posture. When you see a need, need. Let your default be yes. Put your yes on the table for the needs that are around you in the church. And by way of application, this passage also provides an example of sacrificial giving to the church. When the believers gave, they laid the, the funds from the property that they were selling at the apostles' feet. And by doing so, they were giving to the church. But when you give to the church, you are giving to God, and you are enabling the ministry that happens through Jesus' church to continue. That's what we see taking place here in Acts chapter 4. Now, there is, there's a stigma around giving to the church and talking about giving to the church, even though the Bible really isn't shy about talking about uh, giving at all. But why do you think that is? Why is it that there's this stigma? I, there's some churches that are afraid to even talk about it uh, because they're afraid of how people might respond. 
Um, but would you guys agree that there's a stigma around that subject sometimes? I know I felt it. And I, maybe you've heard or seen about churches mishandling funds. There are prosperity preachers who cheat people out of money for selfish gain. Unfortunately, people like this are out there, and the Bible actually does warn us about them. The Bible tells us that uh, they, they will be out there, and they were out there as early as the first century when the scripture was being written. That's why it's important to find a church home with, with godly leaders that you can trust to steward the resources of the church well. Even though there are false churches out there, Jesus still loves his church, and his church is plan A and plan B and plan C to reach the world, carry out the great commission. And the ministry of the church is carried out through the generosity of the members. At Pillar San Antonio, the, the elders manage the funds, but the funds belong to the members of the church. In fact, just this past Sunday, uh, our members voted on our new budget, and the members are the ones who decide what happens with all the money that's being given to the church. Where this, where these funds are going to go? Uh, where? How much is going to go to missions? How much is going to go to building? How much is going to go to personnel? And, and the elders of the church are tasked with managing that day to day under the oversight of the congregation. And because of that, because you give, the gospel is preached here each and every Sunday morning. And people hear the gospel. Because you give, we'll be able to plant a church in Colleen in the near future that's also going to proclaim the gospel. And many people are going to hear the word of God. Because you give, we're able to help keep missionaries like Jonathan and Bethany Derbyshire in Thailand on the field who are actively training pastors who are being sent out to plant churches among unreached people groups. Because you give, we're able to do outreach like we did just this past week and go serve tacos and stock a food pantry at our local elementary school, Merton Elementary, right around the corner. We're able to minister locally and globally because you give. That's why you give. Regular sacrificial giving to the church is a natural outcome in the lives of spirit-filled people. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 4. So I'll ask you, are you regularly giving, cheerfully and sacrificially to the work of the ministry? If not, let me give you four reasons from Scripture that I would encourage you to start. And, and also, uh, these reasons could also be reasons for you to consider increasing your giving towards the ministry of the church. Just real quick, I want to run through these. Number one, all that we have already belongs to God. Paul told the Corinthians, as they gave generously, he said, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. I'm going to tell you just a very simple principle that I found to be true in my life, and I think is true, true biblically, that God gives to those he knows he can give through. God gives to those he knows that he can give through. And that, I think, matters for us individually, and it matters for us as a church. That's one of the reasons, even in our church budget, we want to give as much away towards missions and church planning as we possibly can. We're not here to build the kingdom of Pillar San We're here to build the kingdom of God. And that's what we try to do as our family. We're not here to make our lives as comfortable and luxurious as we possibly can. So we want to give generously. And I've just found, as we've done that, God has continued to supply all of our needs and he's enabled us to be able to increase our giving throughout our lives. All that we have already belongs to him and we're stewards of God's resources. 
Number two, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The older I get, the more joy I have in giving presents at Christmas than receiving presents at Christmas. Have you found that to be true? Why is that? Well, it's because as you get older, you realize you you already have all that you need. I don't need presents. I appreciate them, but there is nothing like giving a lavish gift to someone and then watching their face light up with joy. You can't replace that. I don't care. You can like give me a brand new 2024 F-150, and that still wouldn't give me as much joy as being able to provide a lavish gift to somebody else and seeing their face light up. There's just something about that that you cannot replace, and it's because it's a biblical principle. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's really true. And I know that at the end of my life, I'm not going to wish that I had bought more gadgets that will fade away. I wish that I had given away more resources to the advancement of God's kingdom. Number three, God will supply all your needs. Paul told the Philippians, he said, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I think, honestly, if we make honest, one of the reasons sometimes that we don't give sacrificially and cheerfully is because we're afraid. We are afraid to take that step of faith because the budget might be tight. We don't know where it's going to come from. We don't know how we're going to be able to, to, to make it. And we just need to remember that God provides everything that we need. And he's always going to supply our needs. God will supply all of your needs. And for giving is what Christians do. That's the main point here in verses 32 to 37. The believers are filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 31. The natural outcome of their lives is they are giving generously. That's what Christians do. It's one of the ways that love itself is manifested. It's not something that we do out of obligation. And we don't we don't bring our gifts to God kicking and screaming. That's what I'm talking about. That's basically what Ananias and Sapphira did. We're about to get to them, right? They weren't giving out of the cheerful heart, right? We give out of a heart that already recognizes that God has given lavishly to us. And so we want, in return, to give back to the Lord. So if you're struggling with a desire to give, then I just encourage you to ask God for help. Ask the Lord for help. Lord, I pray that you help me to overcome my fear of trusting you in my finances. Lord, I pray that you help me to overcome selfishness. Or Lord, I pray that you help me to overcome apathy. Give me a desire to want to give rather than to receive. But if you pray that, God will honor that prayer. He will hear you and he will help you. As wonderful and as generous as this early church was, not everyone was, was sincere. We alluded to that just a moment ago. So in chapter 5, we see the rotten fruit of hypocrisy. You notice that chapter 5, verse 1, begins with the word but. That means that there's a contrast coming. We're about to see a contrast to what was just said. So we have the example of Barnabas, who gave generously, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Good start. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some for himself of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira wanted to hold on to their possessions more than they wanted to serve fellow believers and worship God. But they also 
wanted to appear pious and generous, like Barnabas. So, they sold the property and then lied by pretending to bring all of the proceeds to the apostles, just like everyone else. The problem is that you can't hide things from God. You can't hide secret sin from the Lord. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He doesn't just know what we do. He knows why we do what we do. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter what was going on in verse 3. He said, Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? That's a great question. Why, Ananias, did you do this? If you didn't want to give the money in the first place, why did you go sell the property and then pretend like you actually did give it, give it, but then kept part, that part of the proceeds for yourself? He goes on in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? They didn't have to sell it or give it away. Notice that Peter doesn't rebuke Ananias and Sapphira for not giving them, does he? He doesn't even rebuke them for not being generous. He rebukes them for lying to God. He rebukes them, in other words, for their hypocrisy. Rather than being filled with the Spirit, like the believers we see in verse 32 and 37, notice the contrast. He said it says that Satan filled their hearts. It's a lie to the Holy Spirit. This is the rotten fruit of hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira were going through the motions of godliness without the heart to match. They weren't giving out of the love for God and others. They did what they did because they loved their possessions and they loved man's praise. By their actions, they demonstrated where the treasure of their heart truly was. And that's what hypocrisy is. It's insincere worship. It's pretending to be devoted to God while you are really devoted to yourself. I want to give three lessons from this section. Lesson number one, hypocrisy has no place in the church. When Peter confronted Ananias, he said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Hypocrisy is dishonesty. And who's the father of lies? That's right. So going through the motions of worship for selfish gain is detestable to the Lord because it's satanic in worship. The, the trouble is, is that it looks pious on the outside. But Paul does say in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan is an angel of light, doesn't he? He says that Satan is an angel of light. But make no mistake, hypocrisy is satanic. It's not godly whatsoever. It's rooted in dishonesty. And it's rooted in lust. And, and think about Jesus. Jesus' harshest rebukes were reserved for who? The scribes and Pharisees, right? These are the religious leaders, supposedly the godliest men in the land. And he says, woe to you, you hypocrites. And then for people like the prostitutes and the tax collectors who are broken and weeping and wiping his feet with their hair, with their tears, what is he doing? He's laying his hand on them and he's saying, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus isn't looking for perfect hearts. Jesus is looking for pure hearts. He's looking for hearts that are honest before him. He's looking for those who are poor in spirit, 
who are mourning over their sin, not those who are pretending to have it all together, who have built this facade so that everybody around them will respect them and admire them and go, wow, isn't that a godly man or woman? Isn't that a theologically robust man or woman? God doesn't care about any of that. He wants your hearts. He wants the purity of your worship, even if you're broken, even if you're struggling. Psalm 51, 17 says that God will not reject a broken or repentant heart. And that's good news for those of us who know that we don't have it together. Who knows you're a hot mess this morning? I know I'm a hot mess this morning, and guess what? You are in great company if you're a hot mess, if you come to Jesus. Because Jesus specializes in taking broken sinners who know they need God's grace and making us new. And giving us grace. But he's detested. He detests hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has no place in the church. And hypocrisy, lesson number two, will be exposed. Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to lie to God and they put to test the spirit of the Lord. But you see, God is omniscient. That means that he's all-knowing. He knows what we do. He knows our motives. He knows when we lie down. He knows when we awake. Jeremiah 17 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. At the heart of Ananias and Sapphira's sin was that they didn't fear the Lord. They loved the possessions of man's praise more than God and God's people. They never would have admitted that, of course. If you had asked them, do you love the praise of man and your possessions more than God, they would say, of course, we love God. We go to church every Sunday. They got baptized recently. I read my Bible. I'm sound theologically. I don't follow false teachers. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, you will know them by the fruits. I think that people who are who are caught up in hypocrisy. They, they, they have difficulty recognizing themselves. Hypocrites have to buy their own press and rationalize their dishonesty. Hypocrites never think of how scripture applies to them, only how it applies to other people. Hypocrites are quick to point out the speck in another's eye while ignoring the law that's in their own. Hypocrites may admit to sin, but they minimize it or point out how it's really somebody else's fault. The only hope for a hypocrite is that the Holy Spirit miraculously humbles them and brings them to their senses. So I just want to ask you, are you being honest with yourself and with others and with God, or are you pretending to be something that you're not? And the only person you're doing a disservice to, if you try not, if you try to avoid that question this morning, is yourself. Are you being honest with yourself and with God, or are you pretending to be someone that you're not? You can fool the church for a time, but you can't fool God, and your sin will find you out. And, and, and this is a loving warning from the Lord. Because you don't have to keep going down this self-deceived path of destruction. You should not go down the self-deceived path of destruction. Because your sin will find you out. And better to expose it now by confessing it 
and to stand before God one day all alone without Jesus by your side because you trusted in your own righteousness. God, I pray that is not the case with anyone in God isn't looking for perfect hearts but pure hearts. You just need to humble yourself before him and admit, I don't have enough. He confess that you're a sinner. You've been pretending to be someone that you're not, and you desperately need God to save you and change you from the inside. And He'll do it. And the third lesson is that hypocrisy will be judged. After the Holy Spirit exposed Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy, God's judgment was swift. Verse 5 and 6 says that when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last, and great fear came upon all the birds. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. But right after this, his wife Sapphira comes in. Peter asks her the same questions. Sapphira lies, and she meets the same fate of her husband. And the result in verse 11 is that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And that word for fear is the same word translated as awe. Back in chapter 2, 42 47, describing the response of the people to the miraculous signs. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira caused a deep reverence for the Lord in the hearts of God's people. They were reminded that the Lord is holy. Now, on the surface, this seems harsh, doesn't it? Like you might read this and go, wow. Like, is this, this a, like maybe one of those the punishment doesn't fit the crime kind of instances? Like, I mean, I know they shouldn't lie and they're being hypocrite, but strike them dead? Really? It's important to remember the context of the new covenant community. Ananias and Sapphira were not Christians being punished for their sin or losing their salvation. Their behavior betrayed their unbelief. This story closely mirrors passages like Joshua chapter 7, where Achan was put to death by the Lord because he brought sin into the camp. Israel had just enjoyed victory at Jericho, miraculously, but they ran into trouble at Ai, a much smaller city, because Achan had coveted banned items. He took some of the plunder that the Lord had forbade the people of Israel to take, and he had buried it and hidden it. So because of his covetousness, judgment from God came upon the entire camp of Israel, and Achan was ultimately singled out as the perpetrator, and he was put to death. And in the same way, Ananias and Sapphira, because of their own covetousness over their possessions, they are singled out as as, as cancers, essentially, to the people of God, as people who had brought sin into the camp, and the Lord removed them. The Lord put them to death, removing them from the covenant community. The judgment on Ananias and Sapphira was righteous because God is infinitely holy, and he cares deeply about preserving his church and the purity of his church. Now, obviously, this is an extraordinary event. God does not strike hypocrites down dead on the spots today. This is not a regular occurrence or a pattern or a prescriptive text. This is a descriptive passage. But it is intended as a warning for any who think that they can live a lie before God. Because while hypocrisy may not be instantaneously judged, it will be judged and found out. 
So how are we to respond to something like this? How do we respond to Ananias and Sapphira being exposed as hypocrites and the Lord dropping them dead right there on the spot? And what the scripture tells us. Verse 11 again, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all, all who heard these things. So if you read this passage and you think, eh, that'll, that'll never happen to me. This applies to that. You should do some serious soul searching. Just gonna be honest with you. You should do some serious soul searching. This passage is intended to cause genuine Christians to say, Lord, make me like Barnabas. Never, ever, ever let me go down the path of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't ever want to go there, Lord. Help me. Keep changing me from the inside out. I love you. I worship you. And I want to be pure before you. And here's the thing. That's the heart cry of a true Christian who has the Spirit of God inside of them. And the good news is that for those who are truly in Christ, for those of you who are born again Christians, He will hold us fast. True Christians hear warnings like this and they heed them. In fact, one of the ways that God keeps us from drifting off into sin, one of the ways that He keeps us saved, is He uses warnings like this to remind us that's the whole reason we have warning signs on the street when you're driving, right? Warning, keep back, right? Or warning, there's you know, sharp turn ahead. They're there not to scare you, not to give you low self-esteem, not to make you feel like you're a bad driver. They're there to keep you safe. And that's what the warnings in Scripture are there to do for, for believers. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 27 and 28, one of the most comforting verses in all the Bible, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will be able to pluck them out of my hands. See, Christians, they hear Jesus' voice. They hear Jesus' loving, gracious warning in Acts chapter 5, verse 111, and they follow him. I want to be a part of this. I'm not going to follow Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, search me and know me and see if there is any unclean way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's my heart cry. And that's what I hope and pray will be the heart cry of every single person here in the church this morning.